Well, good morning. I could welcome you to our service at Anchor Baptist Church and hope that you've had a great week and looking forward to a wonderful service. We have a couple of announcements and then uh, we will have our scripture reading. All right. Good morning. Hope you guys are all enjoying a, a little warmer weather this morning than we had last week. Um, this week we have going on is Tuesday. The ABBI classes are restarting Tuesday night, so be excited about um, coming out for those as Pastor um, continues working through his different series. Wednesday night we have Crazy Hat Night for Truth Trackers. Uh, Thursday they had the ladies' meeting, and the next Sunday there is a Teens Inspiration. The following week there's a couple different op- activities going on, whether it be college and career. Um, there seems like there's a teen activity, men's prayer breakfast. So just be looking forward to those. Uh, please be checking the bulletin boards for anything to sign up for. Pastor Josh. Our opening scripture reading is found in Psalm 37, and we will start in verse 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, He shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. I have been young, and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful, and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. Depart from evil, and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loveth judgment, and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land, and dwell therein forever. The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and the tongue talketh of judgment. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watcheth the righteous, and seeketh to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Our theme for worship today, let's walk in godly wisdom, considering his strength, goodness, and tender care. Please let's bow together for a word of prayer. Ask the Lord to bless our service. Father, we think about the scripture we just read, and I pray that as we reflect on that, that you would speak deeply to our hearts. Father, help us to recognize that though this world is very troubling and there are so many difficulties that we encounter, even as believers, that you do not forsake the righteous. Rather, you uphold your people and you care for them. And I pray that as we think about the time that we live in history and the various challenges that we're encountering as individuals, as families, as a nation, that we would remind ourselves of what the scripture reminds us, that you are good, that you are merciful and kind, and that you are a God who is righteous and just, and we can rest in those things about you. And so I pray that you'd help us to walk in wisdom as we think about that. Father, we pray for our congregation, especially those who are dealing with sickness. I pray that you would help them to be back in good health very quickly. I pray for those who have traveled. I pray that you will give them traveling mercies and 
those who have opportunity to spend time with family or friends, that you would bless those opportunities and that they would be very rich and encouraging. Pray for those who have recently uh, lost family members and are in the grieving process. I pray that you would provide a tremendous measure of comfort and strength. And Father, I pray that as we um, think about the scriptures this morning and as we sing these hymns of praise to you, that you would take the word of God and minister richly to our souls, uplift us where we need that, strengthen us where we need that, um, shape our thinking, convict us if necessary. May all that is done uh, be uh, just effective in helping us grow more and more into Christ's likeness. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all in person. Good to have live stream folks dialing in, connecting. Dial in. Well, that goes a long ways, doesn't it? That age shows my age. Anybody still dial in anymore? Not. Anyway, as we begin our song service, we want to take a hymn book or follow along with us on the screen. Turn to page two. All the way to page two. Please stand with me as we sing all three verses of Come, Christians. Join to sing. getting started. Turn to page six. Page six. Y'all are starting off with a really strong voice. Let's keep it going. All three verses of I Sing the Mighty Power of God.
a seat. We're going to turn to page 12, though, staying close to the front of the book. Page 12, all hail the power of Jesus' name. And sing until we run out of song. you going. Amen. This time we'll have our second reading of scripture, still in Psalm 37. We're going to go back up to the beginning, and we're going to read the first eight verses. Psalms 37, 1 through 8. And the scriptures say, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord, and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word.
right, as we continue our songs, we're going to turn to page five, staying in the front of the book today. So this is our meet and greet song, so I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing the first two verses, then on the third and fourth, you get to turn around in the pews and greet one another. Now listen, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing is not a long song, so you're going to have to meet and greet quick, okay? So when we get to, to get to verse three, just turn around. No, no going across the the the, uh, the auditorium this time, okay? So let's let's sing it. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. worse than herding cats in a Baptist uh, church. All right, going to have to remain standing though for the next one. Turn out the book, uh, get the blue book out. All right, and, and, and I won't point out some folks, but some little kids went all the way across the auditorium. They may not get their song tonight after all that. Ooh. Okay, page 41 in the blue book. Sorry. I'm monologuing here and uh, not staying on track. Page 41, worthy of worship is our Lord Jesus Christ. Sing all three verses. Sing out.
Okay, well, our children who are junior church age can be dismissed to the back for your class. And the rest of you, I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and let's all turn together to the 37th Psalm this morning, Psalm 37. And the Psalm that we're going to look at is a very, very practical Psalm, especially when I think about the time that we are living in today, the time when there's a lot of tumult in the world, a lot of tumult in our nation. And I think that if uh, you are prone to listen to a lot of political commentary and those kinds of things, uh, you are carrying a massive burden of frustration as you think about the things that we are living through in our nation. I think it's important when we are in a position like that to stop and not to meditate on our troubles, but to look at the Word of God and let the Scriptures speak for themselves. And as we dig into the Scriptures, let it shape how we think how we live, and ultimately it would lead us to walk in godliness and in wisdom because that's what the scriptures tell us to do. So Psalm 37, we're going to read verses 1 through 8 together, but we're going to kind of look at the entire psalm and uh, we'll begin in verse number 1. Here's what the scriptures say. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way. Because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Please, let's take a moment and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts through his word. And then let's dig into this psalm together. Father, as the word of God is opened, I pray that the Holy Spirit would take the word and minister it it richly to our souls. Father, help our hearts to be tender to the intent of the text in front of us. As we think about these words that were written so many thousands of years ago, May we recognize that there has never been a generation since the fall that has escaped the troubles of living in a fallen world. There is no generation since the fall who has not felt the things that are addressed in this psalm and that did not need the instruction that the psalmist writes in these words. I pray that as we dig into this text, you would help us to think biblically And Father, I pray that you'd help us not to be passive and lazy and fearful, but may we be resilient and may we be engaged and may we be found faithful in whatever you have called us to do at this time in history. We ask it all in Christ's name, amen. I'd like to summarize the psalm in front of us the following way. God wants his people to understand their moment in history. And his goodness so they will seize the opportunities that he has given them and live with an eternal significance rather than waste what has been given to them. 
Let me read that again. God wants his people to understand their moment in history and his goodness so they will seize the opportunities he has given them and live with an eternal significance rather than waste what he has given them. We are all living at a moment in history. In fact, we do not know where in human history we are living. Some say, well, we're living uh, within a few years of the rapture of the church. And that may be true. I have no idea. I'm living with an anticipation that the Lord Jesus Christ could come at any moment. But I also recognize that that is exactly how the Apostle Paul lived. And he lived 2,000 years ago. And he lived with this anticipation of the return of Christ. And he had this balance between recognizing Christ could come at any moment. And he anticipated that moment. And he lived with this excitement about the return of Christ. And also a recognition that there were things that God called him to do at that moment and he had no idea how what he was doing at that moment was going to impact, could I say, 2,000 years of history and perhaps it continues on. We do not know. And the point is this. God wants us to recognize that walking in wisdom is not idle. Walking in wisdom is not sticking our heads in the sand and saying, I know Jesus is coming back in my lifetime. I know he's coming back in a few weeks. And so I'm just going to live hunkered down waiting for that moment. That is not how we're to live the Christian life. The passage in front of us really emphasizes that. Simply put, God's will is for you to be a faithful Christian right now. His will is for you to be a faithful dad. His his will for you is to be a faithful mom or a faithful grandfather or grandmother or a faithful high school student or a faithful child that's growing up in this very difficult time. God's called us to be faithful Christians. And I want to remind you of the parable of the talents that we read about in Matthew 25 because I think it captures this concept very, very well And will really set the stage for what we will look at in the first portion of Psalm 37. In these verses, Jesus says the following. Watch therefore, for ye know not, or we know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And as you read your way through this text, you'll see that there, were, there was one person that he gave five talents to. And those are not like the ability to sing or something like that. Talents would be an allotment of money. And then one he gives two talents and another he gives one talent. And someone might say, well, hold on, why isn't there equality there? The point is, that doesn't matter. He is the master and he gives us what he believes that we should be able to manage. And what is interesting as we read through the parable is that the person who received five, they went and they invested those talents and he didn't know when the master was coming back. He knew that he was going to come back. But when he came back, he presented to him not five talents, but 10 talents. And then the the servant that received two talents did the same kind of thing. He came back when the master came and he presented to him not two talents, but four talents. And in each of those situations, the master did not look at the one who, gave, who, who brought four and say, how dare you not bring ten? He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with what I gave you. Now I'm going to entrust to you more. But then there was another servant who received one. And the text says that when he got it, he took it 
and he buried it in the dirt. Now, I hate to say it, but this is how a lot of Christians actually live and think. All of these abilities that God has given us, that he has designed for us to use for eternal purposes, we take it and we bury it in the dirt. And when the master came back, he gave him one talent. You say, well, he didn't steal from him. Yes, that's technically true. He didn't steal from him. He wasted what was given. The purpose of entrusting the man with a talent was so that he would invest it and he could give it back. And what's intriguing to me about the way that this states it at the end is he says, the Lord answered and said unto him, thou wicked and slothful servant. Do you know what the servant said to him? He says, I was afraid. You say, well, don't people have the right to be afraid? What did Jesus say? Wicked, slothful servant. In other words, fear is not an excuse for us to waste what we're given. Fear is something that we all anticipate, something we all deal with, but it is not an excuse for us to waste what God has given to us. And so as we look at this, this statement that Jesus makes in the parable, we see that being watchful is not being idle. Being watchful involves being faithful. And this faithfulness is not measured by what we start with, but rather what we do with what we've been given. And faithfulness is tied to how we view the master. The one person buried it because he was afraid. And his view of the master was not one of love and affection, but one of fear. And God commended the faithful stewards and rebuked the unfaithful stewards who were lazy, fearful, and idle. Well, Psalm 37 is going to give us the tools that we need to think thoroughly biblical about this issue. And as we think about the moment that we're living through in history so that we will be faithful, this psalm in front of us is going to give us what we need. So with that in mind, let's begin by looking at the structure of Psalm 37. Now, I'm not going to focus all of our attention on the entire psalm, but I do want to actually address the entire psalm so that you can kind of see all these pieces, how they work together. And the structure of the psalm is actually kind of simple. He starts out in verses 1 through 8 with God, God's people being a people that need to walk in wisdom. And we see this in several statements that he makes. For instance, look down in verse number 1. He says, fret not. Also in verse 1, he says, do not be envious against the workers of iniquity. In verse 3, he says, we are to trust in the Lord. In verse Number four, he, or verse three, he says, we're to do good. In verse four, he says, we are to delight ourselves in the Lord. Verse five, we're to commit our ways unto the Lord. Verse number five, later, he says, trust in him. Verse number seven, rest and wait patiently for him. Now, we're going to break down each of those statements a little bit later in this message. But that first little section basically says, this is what wisdom, godly wisdom looks like in a fallen world. This is how the believer is supposed to live. The second portion of the psalm is found in verses 9 to 22. And in these verses, the highlight, the focal point is God punishes evil. Now, when we look at the world around us, we don't sometimes see God punishing evil, at least not immediately. 
Sometimes it appears that the wicked just get away with everything. Anybody ever feel that way? It's like you, you, see, you see the things that people do and you're like, is God going to deal with this person? Is God going to step in and, and, and deal with them the way that he should? And for a period of time, sometimes it appears that God is not going to do that. But that's not the case. These verses highlight the fact that God is righteous. He is just he punishes evil. Not just he's going to punish evil on that final day, which he most certainly will, but he punishes evil even in the here and now. We see this play out in real time as we live our lives and observe humanity. Verse number nine, he says, evildoers shall be cut off. Verse 10, a little while and the wicked shall not be. Thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. Verse 13, the Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. Now, you go, well, that looks kind of callous. Well, here are these people that live their lives with this anger and this rebellion and this disdain for God, and they literally shake their fist at him and they say, I can do anything that I want. I can live any way that I want, and I'm not going to be held accountable for any of this. And God says, really, you think that? You're wrong. That's what it's saying. And then in verse number 20, it says that the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke so they consume away what are those verses telling us god's going to punish evil might not be on our timetable but he's going to do it and then we move from that second section to a third section and that's verses 23 to 32 and in these verses we see that god comforts and he cares for his people and the simple fact of living in a fallen world is that there are times that we look at what's going on and we're we're we're, we're angry we're fearful we can't sleep at night we're full of anxiety about these things we, we feel like there's no point in the things that we're doing and we just want to bury our heads in the sand and take the talent and bury it just like we see in that parable and what do these verses say they say god cares for us while we experience these difficulties. Listen to what he says in verses 23 to 24. He says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. That's kind of an interesting statement. I mean, you could really look at that a couple of different ways. One way is that a godly person looks at the word of God and they say, to the very best of my ability, I want to do what the word of God tells me to do. And so his steps are ordered by the Lord. And there is that sense to it. But there's another sense as well, and I think it's really almost a combination of these two, that as we seek to walk in obedience to the Lord, in his kind hand of providence, he works in our lives to accomplish good. Even through the challenges of life, the difficulties, the pains. And so he says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Now, when he says God upholds him with his hand, the idea is that he's personally and actively involved in the lives of his children. This morning I was reading Proverbs 3 because it's March 3rd, right? And as I was reading through Proverbs 3, one of the things that really stood out to me was how many times he talked about how wisdom and godliness, how, it, how it's something that leads to a rich life, a full life, a prosperous life, a joyful life. Go to Proverbs 3 if you didn't read it today and work your way through and notice how many times 
he talks about the way of the righteous as being a delightful way, a way of blessing, a way of prosperity. The reason for that is because God upholds his children with his hands. Verse 25, this is a fascinating one. He says, I've been young and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Now someone might hear, here might be saying, well, I know a righteous person that was begging. I know a righteous person that went through hardship and difficulty. You need to recognize part of righteousness in the sense he's talking about is a person who walks in wisdom. And there are certain, we could say, downstream effects of walking in godly wisdom. And basically what he's saying is, no matter what's happened in a person's life, God has taken care of them if they walk with him. Fascinating statement that David makes there. Verse 26, he says, he is ever merciful and lendeth and his seed is blessed. This person actually lives a vibrant life that blesses other people. They're not just absorbing all the resources around them, but they literally invest in such a way that their life benefits the people around them. Verse 28, the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. So what have we seen? There's a way to walk. We've seen that God punishes evil, that God comforts and cares for his children. And then the last part is that he actively works in the world for good to preserve his people. And what we mean by that is if God just abandoned his people and just left the world to itself, there would be a self-implosion that would take place. God is actively working to preserve humanity and to preserve his people. And so we see these following statements. Verse 32. The wicked watcheth the righteous and seeketh to slay him. Whew. You think about that. There are people that they literally sit back and they watch the lives of righteous people and in their mind they plot how to take whatever is at their disposal and they, they plot to destroy that person. Yeah. Whew. Kind of scared to think about. There might be people that actually, they're like that towards you. I don't know. There might be people that are like that towards me. I don't know. There are people like that. Verse 33, the Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. That's an interesting statement. So while there are people that watch the righteous and want to destroy them, God will not abandon them. And he protects them and he preserves them. Verses 35 and 36, he says, I've seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree, yet he passed away and lo, he was not. You ever read the stories of people in history who became very powerful by brute force and evil? And all of a sudden, just one day, <laughs> they were removed from power. And you just step back and you how in the world did that even happen? The hand of God. His ways are masterful. Verse 37, he says, Mark the perfect man. Behold the upright. The end of that man is peace. Verse 38, but the transgressor shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. That's the psalm. That is the structure of the psalm. That God tells us to walk in wisdom. And this world is full of a lot of evil, but God is just 
And God preserves his people and God protects his people and God comforts his people. And ultimately it is the providence of God. And by the way, we can't see all this at work. As we are living our lives, sometimes the way that God is working in circumstance, we don't really understand it at the time, but we look back and we see how God, God's intervention at points in our life was for our good and ultimately to preserve us. All of this is laid out in Psalm 37. The second thing I want you to see, though, is that God's righteousness should encourage us to walk in wisdom in two distinct ways. So everything that's talked about in the psalm, when God says he is righteous, or when David says that the Lord is righteous and the Lord is just, there are two things that are meant to come to our minds. If God is righteous, you can fall on one of two sides of who he is, okay? Either you are in his favor under grace, or you are under wrath. It's the two options, okay? Either you're under grace, you're under wrath. Either you're going to stand accountable to God for the full weight of your sin, or somebody else has taken that sin on themselves, and you are freed from the condemnation because of his action on your behalf. And so we can be comforted by God's righteousness, or we can be terrified by God's righteousness because it really comes down to, are we under wrath or are we under grace? Are we living contrary to him as one who resists him or as one who's embraced him and he is savior, he is Lord, he's father. There's a great difference. And so we see the first encouragement is that his righteousness motivates him to punish evil. And that should comfort you. That should come for me. I'm not the one who's responsible to secure justice for myself. I can trust God to do it on my behalf at the right time in the right way. In verse 9, he says the evildoers shall be cut off. That's emphatic. In verse 10, a little while and the wicked shall not be. You will consider his place diligently and it shall not be. You're going to look for him and the power and the position, he's gone. What happened to this guy? How did this happen? God removed him. Verse 13, the Lord shall laugh at him for he seeth that his day is coming. Verse 35, I've seen the wicked in great power spreading himself like a green tree. He passed away, lo, he was not. Verse 38, transgressors shall be destroyed together and the end of the wicked shall be cut off. What's the point? The point is that I can live in this world resting in the fact that God's just. And it should comfort me because I go, I'm, I'm in grace because of his work on my behalf. And I can trust him to resolve all those issues out there that are outstanding, that I am completely powerless to resolve myself. One of the great tragedies of history is that many times the people who have the greatest sense about a thing are not the ones in the position to resolve the issue. And when those people are in that position, it's because of God's mercy. He has placed people in those positions to take those actions and endue them with the wisdom to do it because he's kind. Not because they were able to put themselves in such a position. And so we're encouraged by the fact that God is righteous. He's going to punish evil. And we can rest in that. Encouragement two, he, he, his righteousness motivates him to actively preserve his people. God's going to do the right thing. Now you think about the story of the Old Testament Israel. And think about what was going on during the time of Ahab and Jezebel. 
And think about Elijah. Elijah is there, he's, he's cowering and he's upset on the backside of the desert sitting behind this mountain. And he basically says to God, God, there's nobody else in Israel who's serving you. I'm the only one. God says, that's not true. <laughs> he says, let me tell you how many people have never bowed the knee to Baal. Why do you say, I haven't seen those people. In fact, when we go to the book of Romans, Romans 9, 10, 11, what does he say? That God preserved a group of people within that nation while the whole nation was abandoning God and walking in their own ways and their own devices, serving idols. And there was so much chaos in the nation. There were a group of people that God preserved for the sake of the nation, for the sake of bringing the Savior into the world. And ultimately, one day, what's he going to do? He's going he's to answer all of the promises that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And the idea is that God actively preserves his people. And this isn't something that you and I necessarily see. This is something that's going on by God's goodness. For instance, in verses 23 and 24, he says, Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. The Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Verse 25, I've been young, now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken, nor a seed begging bread. Verse 28, the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. Verse 33, the Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Verse 37, mark the perfect man and behold the upright, the end of that man is peace. Now here's my question to you. Do you believe that the word of God is true? See, of course I do. I'm an independent Baptist. I believe in the, I believe in the authority of scripture. But do you live like you believe it? That's the question. Deep down in your soul, do you live like you believe that's true? You say, well, how do I know? The answer is, I know if you walk in wisdom or not. You know that's true about me if I walk in wisdom or not. And you say, well, what does walking in wisdom look like? I'm glad you asked. Because we're going to go back to the first part of the psalm. And we're just going to break it down in a real simple way. Simple principles that demonstrate what it means to walk in wisdom. And every single one of us, knowing what we know about God, knowing about his power, knowing about his righteousness, knowing about his holiness, knowing about his love for his people, knowing about his activities in the world, looking at history and seeing what God has done, every single one of us must choose to walk day by day in wisdom. And these verses tell us what that looks like. And I guess we could put it very bluntly this way. The opposite is not walking in wisdom. It's walking in folly. It's walking in a way that's not consistent with the thinking of the Christian. The position of the Christian. A correct understanding of God's character and ways. And so let's go back to the beginning of the psalm and work our way through these simple principles. The first principle is found in verse number one. Here's what it says. Fret not. Can you say that? Yeah, of course you can say that. Say it again. Fret not. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of us live in the I fret mode a lot? Okay. It's true. The vast majority of us, we live our lives in the fretting mode. You say, well, what is fretting? Well, fretting is I'm laying in my bed and all I can think about is how America's fallen apart and 
this is going to happen and that's going to happen and I can't sleep at night and I'm disturbed. It's all I can talk about and I can't wait till I get on there and listen to my political podcast again and flip on the TV, though people don't really watch TV anymore, right? Or, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'm going to watch my favorite commentary. It's just going to make me feel worse about life, okay? Fret not. Wise people don't fret. That's what he's saying. Biblical wisdom leads us to a life of confidence. You say, how is that possible with all the trouble going on in the world? Well, ask David why he did what he did when he wrote these verses. And you say, well, because the Spirit of God moved me. Because it's true. Worry is a sin. Because God wants us to live a life with a calm disposition that finds its greatest joy and security in God. You know, fretting makes no sense. I didn't say it's not easy. It really makes no sense if you step back and you examine it biblically. Does fretting change your ability to do anything? No. Actually, it usually cripples you and keeps you from being able to do the things that you need to do. But what does fretting do more than anything else? It's, it's me trying to put myself in the place of God and then understanding because I am a creature that I don't have the power to do what God can do. That's what fretting is. Worry's not a problem with circumstance. It's a problem with thinking. You know how many people are anxious and worried and fearful and gripped by this thinking who actually, if you look at it historically, are living some of the greatest lives in human history. Do you not realize how blessed we are as an American people today? I know it's a messy time, but we really are a blessed people. Yet there's never been, maybe there's never been a civilization that has been as crippled as the one living right now in this country. It's not circumstance, folks. It's the way we think. It's not a problem with what's going on around us. It's a problem with the way we're thinking internally. Fear has crippled many an able-bodied person and enslaved them and ultimately led them down a road of untold missed opportunity and waste. I could probably say a lot more about it, but I'll move on to the next one. Simply, simply put, do not fret. Principle number two, walk in, walking in wisdom does not envy. Now, fretting is when I'm afraid of what somebody can do to me or what circumstance can do to me. Envy is when I look at someone else's position and opportunity and all those kinds of things. And it unsettles me because I believe I'm entitled to what they've been given that I've not been given. This might be one of the greatest sins of our society today. Envy. I want something that God didn't give me. I demand something that God didn't give me. Envy is a terrible sin that cripples people. Coveting the possessions and the positions and the opportunities of others is a sin. And God wants us to live lives that are content in the current season of life that we've been given by him. Coveting isn't a problem of circumstance, it's a problem in our thinking. There are no temporal positions or possessions or opportunities that can satisfy the sinful passion. If somebody has a problem with envy and you give them, guess what happens? What they get just makes them want more. 
They're not happy with the amount of money that they've been given. They're not happy with the house that they've been given. They're not happy with the car that they're driving. They're not happy with the job that they've been given. They're not happy with their family situation. They're not happy with their spouse. They're not happy with so many things. Why is that? Because envy is a passion that is sinful. It is a lust. It's a discontentment with what God has given us. Giving into this, this passion simply feeds the flesh and sets us up for greater bondage to that passion. Sometimes people who have everything are more discontented than those who have almost nothing. It's an absolutely stunning thing. It's because this is a lust. And God wants our greatest sense of delight to be rooted in him. And what he has freely and lovingly given us. In fact, when we go to Romans chapter 1, what is the first sin mentioned in that devastating text? When they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, neither were what? Thankful. In other words, it is ingratitude that led to all of these abominable sins. What is the root of a lot of what we see in our nation? It's, it's ingratitude. It's envy. It's covetousness. It's the exact opposite of walking in wisdom, and it's what God tells us as his people not to do. Principle number three, walking in wisdom, trust God. The verse states it very simply. He says, trust, verse number three, trust in the Lord. Failing to trust God is both sinful and, I'll use the word illogical. I didn't say it's not easy, but it's illogical. If I could step back and I could look at all the facts as they actually are, I was not making an evaluation on how I feel, but I was making an evaluation based on the real facts, okay? I would look at such a passion as unbelief and unwillingness to trust, and I would say that doesn't make sense. It's illogical. It's not consistent with reality and truth. It's not going to accomplish anything for me. Failing to trust God is sinful and illogical because he wants us to rest alone in him. Our knowledge of God should drive us to this. Our motives should drive us to this. We should recognize that our knowledge and our motives and our wisdom, these things are all limited. You know, if you're going to make a good judgment about something, you need to know all the facts. How many times do we have situations that we really don't know what we're supposed to do in them because we don't have enough information to know what is best? Many, many times we encounter these kinds of situations. And so the psalmist says, trust God. Principle four, walking in wisdom is industrious. Now, this is kind of going back to the parable that we talked about in Matthew 25. Remember, the, the first of the servants, he received the five talents. What did he do? He invested it, he doubled it, and he gave back to the master ten. The second person received two talents. He didn't say, well, I can't believe you only gave me two. Why didn't you give me five? He didn't do that. He said, well, I better do the best I can with the two that I've been given. He invests it. He doubles it. That's a pretty good investment. Gives it back. The third person gets one and he says, oh, master, he's, he's kind of cruel and harsh. And I'm afraid. I'm going to take what he's given me. I'll bury it. When he comes back, whenever it is, I'll just give it back to him. What did the master say? That was the wrong thing to do. You wasted what you were given. You say, well, he didn't throw it away. 
Technically speaking, if your job is to invest, that's what you did. You threw it away. You didn't do what you were commanded to do. And walking in wisdom is not idle. Walking in wisdom is not just standing there or sticking our heads in the sand. Walking in wisdom involves action. And this is something that we need to understand as Christians. We are called to be active in the Lord's work. And every single person in this room has been planted and called to something very unique and different. The the race that I'm supposed to run and the race that you're supposed to run, they're not the exact same. But the principles that undergird how I'm supposed to run my race and how you're supposed to run your race, they're the exact same. And so what you're supposed to do is think, God, what do you want me to do here? I'm going to be active. I'm going to be industrious. I'm going to be faithful in doing good, the work you've called me to. Not sitting back and not doing bad, doing good. Wasting what God has committed to our trust through an action is sinful because God wants us to live industrious lives. Lives that richly bless others and bring glory to him. God wants us to use whatever he's given us. And he doesn't give us all the same stuff. And by the way, every season of life is different. You you have an opportunity right now that you didn't have before and you won't have down the road. Especially those who are young in this room. You you have an opportunity in front of you that you could either waste or you could use for the glory of God. You could use to invest richly in the lives of others and the advancement of God's kingdom. You could sit on those things. The time, the energy, the strengths, the gifts, the opportunities, seasons of life, the education, our access to the Bible, the material resources we've given, the prosperity that we have, the freedom that we enjoy as a nation. Everything that I mentioned that you are not entitled to them. I'm not entitled to them. You are not entitled to having a sound mind. You are not entitled to having a strong body. You are not entitled to being in good health. You are not entitled to the privileges that you've been given by God. You have them for a reason. Because he, in his kindness, gave them to you. There's a song that we sing, Channels Only. And I won't sing it. But we know this song, Channels Only. You know what this song is basically saying? You're like conduit. God has placed you somewhere so that you channel his love and his mercy and his grace, that you are a tool that he works through. It's pretty amazing to think about. I mean, the most practical implication is in your own home, with your kids, with the people in this church, wherever you work, the people who you rub shoulders with that you didn't even choose to want to rub shoulders with them, but you have to because of the nature of God planting you there. Principle number five. Walking in wisdom can see God's goodness and enjoy him. I love this next statement. In verse number four, he says, Delight thyself also in the Lord. Do you know how many people, I'll use the word hate God. You know how many people hate God? You know how people say, I'm an atheist, and you know what they really mean by that? I hate God, and I don't want to consider the facts, because that makes me angry to consider that I'm answerable to a God who is righteous and just and tells me I can and can't do these things. I'm not, I don't want to consider that. That's, that's really the heart of a lot of what we would call atheism. Where people are angry. You know how many Christians, because of something that they've been dealt at some point in their life, they become angry and bitter against God? 
They just take it out on everybody around them. Lots and lots of people. The ability to enjoy God. It's a gracious gift from him. That he could take his word and implant it in our heart. And when we read it, we delight in him. That is something that he does in us. Think about Romans 8, 28. It says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. You could say that it's another way of saying, you know, the, the, the believer, he's the one that loves God. Not the one who hates him. He's the one who loves him. Not saying that's how you become a Christian. He's saying this is a byproduct of being alive in Christ. In, in 1 John, he talks about the person who knows God and or who, who, born of God and knoweth God is the person who, who loves God and loves his fellow man. What's he saying? He's saying that the capacity to love other people and the capacity to love God is something that begins with new life in Christ. And it's something that grows as we actually walk with God, as we commune with him. In other words, the person who walks in wisdom is the one who walks closely to God. It's the one who, when they look at circumstances of life, rather than seeing all the negative challenges and all the things that make so many people disgruntled, they see the good hand of God in these things. And they praise God for his goodness, and they praise God for his kindness, and they praise God for his preservation. They praise him for all those things that he's done. The capacity to see those things is something that God works in us through his grace as we grow into Christ's likeness as his children. And so walking in wisdom... Is not just activity, but it's delight. It's delight in the Lord who saved us. The God who made us and sustains our lives. It's the one who says, I'm not going to replace God with some idol, some creature, something that's been crafted in this world. God is going to be my greatest joy. And you can never come to a place where that is true about you if you're not a Christian. And you cannot come to that place if you do not walk with the Lord. Principle six. We're almost done. Don't worry. Walking wisdom holds its expectations loosely. In verse number six, it says, not, excuse me, not verse six. Verse number five, he says, commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. You know, when we make decisions in life, we don't know how they're going to unfold. When you married the person that you married, you didn't know how things were going to go after that. When you held your first child in your hands, you had no idea how that was, how that was going to play out. When you took a job, you had no idea where you would be five or ten years later. You don't know in life how things are going to play out. There are some decisions we make, we look back and we're like, wow, couldn't, couldn't have planned it any better than it went. There's a lot that we go... Man, if I'd have known that was going to happen, I would not have done that. <laughs> and there's a lot of things we should have thought that way before we made the decision. But here's the point. When a person who's walking in godly wisdom has a decision to make and they believe this is what God wants them to do, they make the decision and they leave it in God's hands. In other words, they hold loosely what's going on. I think of the story of David. He wanted to build the temple and that was a good desire. And what does the prophet say? Hey, go and do it. All that's in your heart. And the next day he has to come back and say, sorry, David, <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> you know what David did? He accepted it. If that's what God says, I'm going to do what I can do. And we have to learn to be a people who hold our expectations loosely. 
You know, a lot of people are unhappy in life because they are so inflexible with God. If I do this, you have to do this. Since when? Since when is God answerable to you and I? He's not. We've got to hold our plans loosely. Presumption is a sin. And we need to learn to roll our plans onto the shoulders of God and trust him to bring to pass what is best. Principle seven, walking wisdom is not restless. He says, rest in the Lord. He wants us to step back and literally leave it on God's shoulders and just let him carry the burden. You say, I can't do that. If God tells you to do it, you can do it. I didn't say it was easy. And I didn't say you won't have to do it a couple of times. (laughs) But God can give us rest. You say in the midst of all the troubles? Yeah, in the midst of all the troubles. We can rest in the Lord if our thinking is grounded in the scriptures. Lastly, walking in wisdom is restrained in its responses. It says, cease from anger. Now, why would a person be angry? Because things didn't go the way they thought they would. It's because the people in power make them angry. The decisions that are going on that they have absolutely no ability to control, they infuriate them. That person that was supposed to get it, they didn't. They didn't get it the way they wanted. That thing that they believed they were entitled to, it didn't happen. Things didn't play out the way that they anticipated. God says, stop being angry. An unjustifiable anger is sin. We've got to learn to stop allowing this sin to control our lives. You say, well, Joel, how do you put it all together? Let me leave you some final thoughts very quickly. God did not pour rich blessings into our lives so that we would cower in fear and live idle lives. You say, well, we're living in a unique time. If I'd have lived in the 1700s, I wouldn't have this problem. Yeah, right. (laughs) If you're over 50 years old and you lived in the 1700s, you probably wouldn't be alive anymore, so you wouldn't have to worry about that. Oh, if I'd have lived at this other time, if I'd have lived in this other country, if I'd have had this other family. No, that's not true. Same principles stand today. God didn't pour rich blessings into your lives so that you would cower in fear. He wants you to live for him. He never promised an easy road for anyone, but... It's not a legitimate excuse to tremble in fear and live an idle life. He wants us to build our lives on him and continually turn to him as we purpose to invest our lives in eternal pursuits. I can say this about life. A lot of times what God really wants you to do is he wants you to step out and sometimes you have to keep rolling it on his shoulders over and over and over again. A lot of people say, I could never make that decision because if I did, I'd I'd have to trust God more. (laughs) Oh, what a novel idea. We need to trust God. He wants us to continually grow, but if we're going to continually grow in a practical knowledge of who he is and live healthy and productive lives that lead to rich blessings of eternal significance, we've got to walk in this kind of wisdom. He's never going to abandon us. Therefore, we should delight and rest in him. So my challenge is very simple. Let's be faithful in these very specific ways. May the Lord help us to do that. Please, let's bow together for prayer. Father, as we think about the text in front of us, 
I pray that we would not be crippled by fear or anger, but that we would rest in you. That we would live obedient lives. That we would delight in you. That we would rejoice in your good hand in our lives. I know these are difficult times, and I know that there are a lot of things that trouble many of us. But these principles are unchangeable, and they're sound, and they call us to obey. And so I pray that you will help us to do that today. Help us to live according to the scriptures by your strengthening hand. I ask that you'll take these words and use them for your honor and glory in each of our lives, and we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.